Welcome to the Classic Kicks Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Santora, and in this episode, we're focusing on the Air Jordan 1. Now, when I heard the Jordan 1 band was coming back out a couple weeks ago, I was first going to write a blog post about it, but then thought to myself, how can we dig a little bit deeper into this story, and decided to record this podcast with a friend of mine and Air Jordan 1 historian, Jordan Hagedorn. Let's start by telling our listeners your connection to the Air Jordan 1. One of my favorite sneakers, of course, and over the years, I was actually born in 1985, so for me, I didn't have the shoe growing up, uh, but I definitely have fallen in love with the shoe over the years like a lot of people. I still think that is a transcendent shoe. It's something that every sneakerhead loves, it seems. You know, even from the release this last weekend, it was pretty crazy. You know, people are going crazy for the shoe, and all the everybody's lined up and everybody's going nuts. So 30 years later, I'm now 31 years old and, and so is the shoe. So to see it go to the heights it's gone and continue to, to, to be uh, a, one of the best shoes of all time, I think is, it speaks to the great design, the, the great history and what Jordan meant to the game back in 1985. So if you were born in 85, when did you first, um, when did you first get the Jordan one in your hands? So it first started, you know, I got into sneakers because I saw Jordan wearing them on the court. My my good friend Travis, his brother, had the Jordan 11. And so once I saw the Jordan 11 Concord in person, I started paying attention more to Jordan on court. So when I was 10 years old, and then I saw the Jordan 12, and I loved that shoe. And then Jordan wore the Jordan 1s in 1998. And I was like, what the hell is that? That's That's obviously not – and at this time, there was no internet. So really, you couldn't just Google Air Jordan shoes or really look back other than on magazines – and even then, it was hard to get old Sports Illustrated or old old magazines as well. So uh, once I bought some old vintage Jordans on eBay, I started looking at ones, and I could never afford those OG ones from 85. Um, the retro from 94 was kind of a weird one, but it ended up being 2001 that I got my hands on a first pair of original ones from 85. We know it's funny that you mentioned 1998, and you're talking about when he wore them against the Knicks at Madison Square Garden. What's funny is that I remember getting an ES, a copy of ESPN, the magazine, and I think it was a picture of him on the back cover from that game wearing those shoes. And like you said, it was pre-internet and all that. And I, I remember getting that magazine, and I was at school in Rhode Island, and I drove around for two days to every sneaker store. I mean, it's a small state, but I drove around to every sneaker store trying to find that, trying to find those shoes. You know, because I had known they'd come out in 94, and I thought they were back out again. And then later on, you know, doing some research, you find out, I guess that was an original pair that Mike had that he decided to bust back out. Yeah, uh, I mean, a great moment for for the shoe world to see now, looking back to say, why did he decide? He must have known at that point it probably was his farewell tour. You know, it's crazy to look back that they're talking he might have come back in 99, but in 98 he wore that shoe just just going back. And, and of course, you know, he made the call. There was a lot of times but the brand wanted him to wear the current shoe, I'm sure, at the time, which, you know, would have been the, the 14. But uh, he wore that one. And to look back and to have that crispy pair from 85, I'm always curious of that story of where he got those or, or why he decided to do it. Did Spike Lee tell him to do it? I mean, you just never really know. So that was one of those funny things that happened. I think, I think a lot of sneakerheads were curious at that time, too. And people that were into sneakers were wondering, what are those shoes? Can I get those again? And, and then that was before the retro craze, really. About a year later, 99, 2000 is when they started to retro shoes again. Let's go back to the beginning and talk about how Jordan landed at Nike. Yeah, so let's go. I mean, this is before I'm born. So of course, this is just off a lot of research I've done and, and read a lot of books and, and kind of tried to soak in as much information as I can over the years. But 
Uh, if you go back, this was before I was born, 1981, Jordan actually wore Adidas in high school. So there's actually some photos of Jordan wearing Adidas that Nike and some of these brands now have photoshopped that off to kind of a little bit bury the history of what he wore in high school. But at Laney High, he actually wore Adidas. And as we know, he really loved Adidas coming up. And then went to North Carolina where Dean Smith was a coach. And with Dean Smith being the coach, it was a Converse school. He had a deal with Converse. So he wore Converse course hit the game winner in 1982 as a freshman and then uh, played through his junior year ended up being the Naismith player of the year but throughout college wore Converse and so then from there he declared for the draft and signed with an agent he signed with Donald Dell who was actually a friend of Dean Smith Uh, Dean Smith was even in the meeting with the agent and they also had the agent David Falk who worked for ProServe ProServe was Donald Dell's agency Donald Dell was a former tennis player so uh, from there you know Jordan was a free agent going into the sneaker world. He loved Adidas. He really told his agents to do anything you can to get me to sign with Adidas and didn't really want to hear anything else. So from there, he was hesitant to really take any meetings, but doing their due diligence, Donald Dell and David Falk, they went around and and found that there were a few offers on the table. So as we kind of know from there, Kareem at the time was the highest paid player with Adidas. He was making a hundred grand a year. And then from there, New Balance gave James Worthy, who was actually Jordan's teammate that freshman year when Jordan hit that at North Carolina, uh, New Balance gave James Worthy a seven-year deal for 150 grand a year. So that kind of became the, that was over a million bucks. Uh, That was the first million dollar deal. So from there, Jordan had offers. Um, He had played in the Olympics in Adidas in 84, and then ended up getting drafted. And at this point, he still hadn't signed a deal. So uh, from there, it sounds like, you know, those those key guys got in the, the meeting, as you know. It was a quote from Jordan saying that he got back from the Olympics in 84 and Falk was like, listen, we want to go to Nike. They want to talk to you. And he said, listen, I'm exhausted. Just do whatever you need to do to get me with Adidas. Yeah. And I think that was a a big thing that although at the time the agents heard MJ and they wanted to please their client, but they really didn't listen to him there. You know, they they that in that case, it was the best thing that maybe happened to Jordan was that they didn't listen to that. And they went and it sounds like they had offers from Converse and they had a pretty big offer from Spotbelt from what I'm told, which is now Saucony. Now, did they did he have an Adidas offer? Because, I mean, it's tough to it's tough to find. It seems like he did have an offer, but it was just pretty much take it or leave it, it seems like. So the godfather of these shoe deals back in the day, Sonny Vaccaro, he was a guy who was in Jordan's ear. He was working for Nike at the time in that documentary ESPN did Soul Man. Vaccaro talks about how Adidas had a little bit of money, Converse had a little bit of money, they maybe threw an offer out. It sounds like he maybe got an offer for around the same thing for 100 grand, the same thing that Kareem had. But of course, uh, at that time, Converse had Larry Bird, Dr. J, Magic Johnson. He was just going to kind of be in the stable of the same guy. So it sounds like they had, may- they had maybe offered 100 grand, but maybe nothing, not much more than that. Whereas Vaccaro and Rob Strasser, who's an executive at Nike, and then Phil Knight, they'd sound like they were going to put all their eggs in one basket and try to get MJ. So uh, I don't think it was the money that maybe spoke. I think Jordan's parents kind of pushed him to go to Nike just to hear it. They had offered from now what we're sound, it sounds like half a million bucks a year, plus maybe royalties, but the opportunity to get their own shoe, to get his own shoe, I should say, the opportunity to get his own shoe, his own apparel, and then get royalties was something that the money was, it sounded like five times bigger than what Adidas and Converse were bringing to the table. What's interesting about that is that, um, as we were talking about earlier, ProServe represented tennis players. So, you know, I think what was important for, for, for those guys, for Dell and Falk and for Jordan was was I've read that he wanted to be presented as a tennis player, meaning he had his whole collection of sneakers with his name on it, 
a la John McEnroe or Yvonne Lendl and his own collection of apparel to go with it, which none of these other players had. Yeah, so the interesting thing about Donald Dell and ProServe is, I mentioned before, but Donald Dell was a former pro tennis player, and he had actually represented Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith. He, in fact, did Stan Smith's deal, sneaker deal with Adidas, which at the time was the biggest, and to this day, now the Stan Smith we've seen come out recently and has been you know, a retro craze with that, and Stan Smith is out there with his mustache at all these events and stuff. And so Donald Dell did that deal with Adidas. So he had a relationship with Adidas already. He had kind of done, to your point, that full service of start to finish, you know, beginning of the career, give them the apparel, give them the, get their name on the shoe. So they had seen that done with Adidas. They saw that with Kareem and, and, the, and Adidas didn't offer that to Jordan. So Nike had offered that up. And pretty interesting that Donald Dell did the deal for Stan Smith and then eventually he and Falk, which Falk takes a lot of credit. There's a lot of animosity there potentially, um, but Falk takes some of that credit. But Donald, he was working for Donald Dell at the time, did that Nike deal. So I got to be honest with you and tell you, this is the first time that I remember hearing the name Donald Dell. Uh, just doing some homework on Donald Dell. Uh, it sounds like David Falk actually pretty much begged Donald Dell to work for him. And he even offered to work for free just to get in the business. And so as that happened, he showed his chops to Donald Dell and then he was able to get into a lot of these meetings. And I think in doing that, Falk proved to Jordan and what ended up happening later was Falk and Jordan branched off and left Donald Dell. So, but at the time it was Donald Dell who had brought Falk to the table, who had then recruited Jordan. Falk and Dell both recruited Jordan. Um, again, Donald Dell was a, a friend of Dean Smith, so that's how they got the connection to Jordan. From there, they, they ended up doing this deal, the first deal, and then from there, Jordan and Falk branched off and did several Nike deals after that, and Donald Dell was kind of cut out of that. But uh, if you do your research on Donald Dell, he's got a website and everything, and he's still actually a professor. He speaks a lot. Uh, brilliant guy, really smart guy that essentially showed the ropes to David Falk, who ended up becoming one of the most influential NBA agents of all time, and, and to this day still has current clients. So. Um, interesting stuff there. If you do the research and you can see who Donald Dell is, of course, you can see who David Falk is. But if we go back to that, kind of the, the players of that, who were in the meeting and the key figures, of course, you had Dean Smith, you had David, David Falk and Donald Dell. Sonny Vaccaro was somebody who shouldn't be ignored. He's somebody who, you know, has been, uh, he got fired from Nike. He, it didn't work out with Adidas. He was recruiting LeBron when he was at Reebok. Well, it seems like Nike's trying to wipe him out of history a little, out of the Nike history a little bit. I, it sounds like from the from the Soul Man documentary, they got what they needed from him, and then they were kind of done. You know, he'd recruited all these coaches. He was really got the coaching thing done to where he was getting all these coaches to become Nike schools. And great guy. Sonny seems like a great guy. He's done a lot for the industry, and, and now he's kind of drifting along. I, I, it's sad to see it a little bit because he is one of the more – influential members in the history of sneakers um that 30 for 30 that we're talking about was amazing also I mean, yeah if, you're if, you, if you get a chance to check that out it's, it's called soul man 30 for 30 i know for sure it's on netflix i just was checking out some facts the other day and uh he pretty much stands there and tells his entire story they animate it it's really cool and uh they talk to some pretty key people within nike and um pretty cool for for him to be able to tell his full story and espn to give him that but you know there's been some crazy animosity between David Falk, Donald Dell, Sonny Vaccaro, Rob Strasser, who now, you know, rest in peace, passed away. Um, not sure who with who, where the beef is or anything like that. But there was, you know, some of those details are blurry of how this all happened because it's the greatest deal in the history of sneakers and maybe in sports. Uh, Nike, Sonny has said many times, Nike would not be Nike without Jordan. And if that doesn't happen, you just never know where this industry would have went. So it was kind of a, back in the day, it was kind of just a white man's running brand, you know, and it wasn't that successful. And 
you know, just read Phil Knight's book as well. He kind of talks about that. And, and once I hit Jordan, once I hit this urban market and this market of basketball and sneakers and, and colorful sneakers and, and really great product, I mean, we've seen it Penny Hardaway, you know, Shaq went to Reebok, got a bunch of money. Uh, Sean Kemp, of course, at Reebok. But, you know, all these guys along the way now have paved the way for Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and even Steph Curry with Under Armour. A lot of people are comparing that deal to Jordan's first deal with Nike. Once Jordan finally ends up signing with Nike, um, what's the date of that? We have an actual, we have a copy of the, we've seen a copy of the actual contract. Yeah, so if we go back here, if we go back to before they signed, right? So we were talking before, there were there a few different brands on the table, right? You had Converse and Adidas and Nike, and then even Spotbelt was kind of in that conversation. So to get to that point, Jordan's parents eventually convinced him to go take the meeting at Nike, even though he didn't want to. And the key people in that meeting seemed to be Sonny Vaccaro, who we talked about, kind of got Jordan in the room. Rob Strasser, who was an executive at Nike, whose name is on that, is whose name is on that first contract with Jordan. And then, of course, Phil Knight, who owns Nike. Um, and then Jordan's parents, Dolores and James Jordan. And then Peter Moore, who was the designer, who was pitching them on having his own shoe. So when they got to that point, it sounds like there was quite a bit of money on the table from Nike that was not being given from the other brands. We're talking maybe a hundred grand from the other brands where Nike and credit to the negotiation of, of Falk and Dell getting it to be a half a million bucks a year. Um, and just read that ESPN piece recently. We had talked about that. Yeah. Five year deal, 2.5 million and royalties on pairs sold. So it sounds like from what David Falk said in that ESPN piece, he was quoted recently with Darren Ravel was talking about that deal all in was around 7 million bucks. And I think there were, there were some stock options, royalties and annuities. So half a million bucks a year brought it to two and a half million. But then after that was all said and done, it got to be 7 million bucks. So uh, pretty crazy considering Worthy had signed a deal for seven years and 1 million and Jordan had essentially earned that in one year. He had got a million bucks plus all the stock options. What I was reading earlier, too, I found I dug up an article from 1985 from a Chicago newspaper, and um, it was saying that the shoe released in March of 85, and by mid-May, within two months, they had already done 5.5 million in sales at retail. And it, and it was Yeah, they said it was an April 1st release date, which that's actually a, a tidbit of information that not many people have. I haven't really seen that on the web. Well, what I was trying to figure out, too, which was I was watching the band commercial again, right? And we'll, we'll get into the band stuff. But the band says on September 15th, Nike created the shoe. And on October 18th, it was banned. So I'm just trying to figure out where the hell those dates come from, too, because it doesn't match up with any of the contracts we were looking at. There, there is a lot of confusion. I mean, I think if we take a, a step back and just look at a little bit of a timeline, of course, you and I have just gone ham on this, like looking at a timeline. But once Jordan signed, so they had pitched Jordan... He actually hadn't signed yet. He he didn't even sign his Nike deal until the first day of the season. So his first day of the season, I'm looking, I think it's October, yeah, October 26th, 1984. That contract is signed. MJ officially signs with Nike. It's the first Bulls game, and it's got MJ's signature and Rob Strasser's signature. Now, the interesting thing about that is I think the deal was probably done officially signed that day, but it was done before and agreed to before because during the preseason in September, right before October and even into October, that's when Jordan is already wearing Nike. So at this point, he switched from wearing Adidas in the Olympics, which was August of 84, mm -hmm. to then wearing the Nike Airship, which is a shoe we'll talk more about. But that Nike Airship, he was wearing in the preseason. And it's that black red Nike Airship that we're thinking that got banned and that it's been said got banned because we still have never seen the Air Jordan 1 black red yeah. on court.
but he did wear that shoe in that uh, inside sports um, piece with Ewing. So he's on the cover with Ewing. We've seen that. He wore that kind of on the court in that sense, but not on an NBA court. So he wore that in photo shoots, and, and we've kind of seen that throughout. But And the slam dunk contest later on. Of course, yeah. So if we look back again, September, he was wearing the Nike Airship, October, and then he signs the deal. And then a lot of people think, oh, he signed the deal, so he's wearing the Air Jordan 1 in his first game. Well, the Air Jordan wasn't ready yet. And from we're speculating it wasn't ready yet. It could have been, you know, just he wasn't ready to unveil it yet at that point, or it wasn't available until April 1st. So we're talking October 26, 1984. MJ officially signs with Nike, plays his first Bulls game. And then we go to October, where he's wearing the Nike Airship throughout. Then at what point is – I'm curious about this, and I would love to hear more from Nike – when does when does that classic photo shoot come into play? When is that done? You know, we talked about the Chuck Kuhn photo shoot where they get the jump man, they have the shoes strung over his, you know, over his chest, and he's wearing those. We see those images over and over and over, and we see it's the black red, and then we also see it's the black toe. So the black toe colorway we see in that. Minus the wings on the side, still just saying Nike Air Jordan on the side. And so we've, we have done a lot of homework, of course, and, and being into this stuff, just nerding out about sneakers. We've seen so many different iterations of that shoe, so many samples. We've seen the Lakers samples. We've seen the black gold samples, which is kind of the, the, the white whale, the unicorn that not many people know about. But more importantly, we've seen a lot of the, the shoes that actually almost released. So Jordan has worn some of the, the shoes we've seen. The Carolina ones with the dunk sole, the the Chicago ones with the dunk sole. We've seen so many different iterations. I want to say at least five iterations of the wings, potentially the wings logo. One that's a wings logo with Nike, one that's a wings logo with Air Jordan, and then a couple variations of that. And so it's it's to me it's pretty interesting to think when the timeline of this. I would love if someone could come out of the woodwork and do it. And and hearing from Peter Moore and hearing from some of these other guys that were within a Nike, nobody can really piece this together. And I think 30 years later, those details are definitely a little blurry for a lot of people. So let's, let's talk about the shoes themselves, because Jordan, when he first saw the black and red Air Jordans, he was not into them whatsoever. Yeah, he called them ugly. You know, he called them ugly on national TV and with Letterman. He said black, red were the colors of the devil <laughs> and that they, you know, he thought he'd look like a clown. There, there's a quote in Driven From Within, which is MJ's book um, back when they, I think, believe did the Jordan 20. And, you know, he put out a book and, and Peter Moore talks about how he had to kind of convince MJ to wear them and they, that he would be noticed. So that was a big thing. It was the first... Peter Moore was was a designer, a graphic designer at Nike, but he just was, for some reason, decided to put full black red on the shoes, and it really changed the way people saw shoes. And MJ, I feel like, was, you can even see it on that Letterman appearance, he's almost embarrassed by it. He's like, yeah, I helped design the shoe, but I had nothing to do with the colors. Yeah. And it just seems pretty crazy that looking back now, he's, you know, MJ drinks the Kool-Aid of anything Jordan brand comes out, he's just loving it, you know. Well, even though now you look back at it, it doesn't seem that crazy. But for the time, it was out of left field. I mean, there were no other companies were doing shoes that bold. I mean, the only thing similar was the Nike Dunk, and those were probably came right after the Air Jordan or probably designed around the same time. Yeah, I mean, all the Air Force Ones and all the Nike shoes we see, the Bruins and the Blazers, they were all very simple. Almost at the time, sneakers were almost utilitarian. You know, it was just, I just need something to, you know, you went from Chucks to like Blazers and Bruins, and the Air Force Ones were pretty cool, but they were still white gray, maybe white red. Uh, and that's why they even had the uniform code of, of just, you know, had to white, white, you had to wear white base shoes. And so when they changed, you know, that's come a long way now. Remember Tracy McGrady wore two different color shoes in the all-star game. And now you look at all-star, the guy's got yellow shoes and, you know, the chrome dadas, of course, that Chris Weber wore back in the day. So I think now, you know, that was a moment where 
of course, looking back doesn't look crazy, but it was something that, and I'd be curious internally how they decided, okay, well, how are we going to get away with this? Or, or what will the public think? You know, I bet a lot of people were skeptical at the time, including MJ, of course. And now we know, but, uh, now I wonder what he thinks of some of these wild colorways. They got some pretty crazy colorways that they drop every year. So here's part of the story, which, you know, I'm trying to put a few of the pieces together. Um, and this leads into the idea of the band air Jordan one. So, I think maybe, okay, so I don't know this for sure. Maybe you have an idea or if these are facts or this is just what we could assume. So we know that Jordan saw the Air Jordan 1. It was black and red. Um, You know, this was in the beginning. This was maybe even before he even signed with them. But the shoes weren't ready for him to wear for that 84 season. So he was wearing a version of the Nike Air Ship, which was another basketball shoe in the... um, you know, 84, 85 catalog, but I, I'm assuming he was wearing a PE version. It seems like they made up a black and red version for him to wear in the preseason while he was getting ready to have the Air Jordan one produced. What a, and, and this airship that we're talking about, you know, looking into it more seems like it was actually the shoe that was banned in the black and red colorway, not the Air Jordan one that's banned. What a, What's your take on this? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it was a PE. It's one of those things that, of course, I've done my fair share of hunting on eBay over the years, you know, since really 01. Excuse me. So uh, I've done my fair share of hunting on eBay over the years, really since 2001 for the most part. So, you know, 15 plus years. And in my time, when you first started back in the early 2000s, you were looking for retros and eBay was pretty new. And there was Nike talk and all these places you kind of find out what the most quote unquote popular shoes were. You looked in kicks magazine, slam kicks, always had great stuff starting in 98. And you saw that this airship was kind of this rare, hard to find shoe and people, and I never really understood why. And then you kind of read about it and you hear Russ Bankston and some of these OG guys talking about, uh, yeah, it was what MJ wore and how they knew that was just really probably magazines and kind of doing their homework. This was before the internet, these guys were on it and you look back and you see the white red pop up on eBay. You see the white blue, you see the white gray, not very often, but the white blue I remember seeing in kicks magazine. I have to go back and look. I think it was probably that 98 issue with KG on the cover, but that was one. They had a section when there were steals on eBay or different shoes that would pop up on eBay. And and that was one of them. So I'd always see those colorways white red more, more often than most. Um, the white red colorway was the most popular to pop up on eBay. And you'd see that I've never seen the black red colorway other than on MJ's feet. So I've actually never seen photos of somebody just in their basement or some random, not even somebody from Nike, maybe snapped a photo. It's always just him either stretching out in that one photo or black and white photos. Yeah. Black and white photos. Or so it's either him stretching out at the gym or him. uh, I think wearing it in a preseason game is the other photo that we've kind of seen. So that's, that's a story that we'd love to, you know, I mean, part of doing this to me is to pull the Jordan one freaks out of the woodworks. I know there's even an Instagram account now, Jordan one club, which is pretty awesome. Shout out to that guy. But uh, just all Jordan one stuff. And I know there's some, some of these awesome guys on Instagram I'd love to connect with to, to talk more about this. There's some guys that have been quoted in, in some of these articles you've talked about, but, uh, it sounds like that black, red Jordan, uh, sorry, that black, red airship. It sounds like that black, red airship is, was a PE and has never been released. And I know for a fact, I just read, um, but we've never even seen a photo of a sample of it or anything. Right? True. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I think that's like one of the most mysterious shoes. Now, part of that is more people that are really into the history have started to dig and say, listen, the Jordan one was not banned, right? Like they, they used it as a marketing ploy, but it was that airship that was banned. And I would be curious now it's tough again, rest in peace, Rob Strasser, but they may have even conjured up this plan with the NBA. We don't really know. That's a little bit of a conspiracy to say, Hey, if you guys ban this, 
this damn thing's going to sell out. And it ended up selling a ton of pairs after they did. But I, I'm curious, what was uniform code? What was actually banned? And, and kind of what those behind-the-scene conversations Well, Nike's still riding the banned story. And we, we've kind of, I mean, we're 90% sure that it really wasn't banned. But 31 Which, years later, we're still talking about it. Even if it wasn't banned, I can't blame them because essentially in the commercial, they say this shoe was outlawed by the NBA. Yeah. Technically, it was, right? It, because you couldn't wear that on the court. Yes. That was not the catalyst or the reason for that ban, though. It was a different yeah, shoe. Right. So it is still, although, you know, and I got to give props to, to yeah. Nike marketing on that. Um, but, you know, it's a little weird to see banned on the bottom of the 31 and some of these things that they're, you know, I guess it's just one colorway. But uh, it is something that is a curious, you know, how that came about. I'm very curious how that came about back in the day. So. Uh, but yeah, I think we would we would agree here, and I would love to hear otherwise if uh, anybody can argue that it was the black red airship that was banned. We think it is, but I'd love to hear if if someone has ever seen MJ wearing that black red Jordan One on the court uh, in an NBA game. No, still no no proof exists in video or photograph form. There's actually the guy who wrote the article. Uh, for Soul Collector, put a little bit of a video up. I don't know if you saw that. And it had Jordan warming up at the Knicks game in the black and red airship. I did see that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's... So to go back a little bit more even, you look at... So the airship he wore in October, and then they're talking, you know, with this uniform code, it doesn't... They don't just ban it instantly, right? There's going to be warnings. There's going to be they either hit up the team or or the trainer or somebody within the organization to talk about, hey, your your guy can't be wearing this. It's not like now where if they even catch wind. So I remember hearing that uh, Nike, if they caught wind that Marshawn Lynch was going to wear these gold shoes on the, on the field, they were going to suspend him or they were going to have him sit out. They're going to find him, do all this stuff. And they caught wind before because he probably tweeted him or something like that. So back in the day, they didn't necessarily have that. So I'm thinking that he wore the airship, the black red airship in a preseason game. And then we get to the timeline of he wore them in the all-star dunk contest rookie year, February of 1985. And then we find out that, and that was February 10th, I believe, February 10th, 1985, mm -hmm. uh, when I was still negative five months old. And then from there, February 25th, 1985 is when that ban letter hit. So there is, that ban letter is on the internet. You can see the date, it's February 25th, 1985, that the NBA reaches out to Rob Strasser at Nike and says, these shoes have been outlawed and they cannot be worn. And there's still no there's still no proof that he would get fined, quote unquote, fined $5,000 a game. I don't know if that was something, some myth over the years that yeah. if he wore them, I even heard that he wore them and then they just paid the fine. There's still no proof of that anywhere. You know, I think, I think he just switched to, that's when they switched the Chicago one or the, the black toe one at that point. So, but that timeline of wearing them, probably getting warned in the preseason and then wearing them at the dunk contest, still not in a game because in that actual all-star game, he wore the Chicago ones. Yeah. Uh, so, but he wore the black red in the dunk contest. Yeah. And then at that point, 15 days later, so two weeks later, then they officially banned it. Well, what's funny about that is they probably were reading the fine print. I bet you there was a meeting saying, hey, this, uh, this ban letter says you're not allowed to wear it in a game, but the dunk contest isn't a game. It's an exhibition, right? So Jordan comes out with the gold chains, the black and red ones. And I think his first dunk, maybe his first two dunks, he was still wearing the wind pants, which, you know, he, if he's getting paid per pair of shoes, it's probably like, screw this. You know, I'm getting paid more. You know, this is a, a worldwide stage right here. You know, I'll wear this whole outfit right here and, uh, and it'll be worth it in the long term. Yeah, I mean, he's getting royalties on on anything. So from what I read in, in Jordan's book, this is biography, his big, thick biography that just came out recently. 
um, talks about how he may have even been getting royalties on anything Nike Air. So any any and apparel and all that stuff. So for him to wear that on that stage, to your point, I know Jordan rubbed a lot of these veterans the wrong way because he's coming in getting a half a million bucks a year from his sneaker deal. Even Kareem, who's the talk of the town at that point. Uh, back in the 80s, he's the guy. Worthy's got that big deal as well. They're getting, you know, 100 grand or 150 grand a year in Worthy's case. And here, Jordan is some young rookie who hasn't proven anything. He hasn't proven shit. He hasn't done shit. And these guys come in and they're all jealous. Or, or you talk about the freeze out where they wouldn't pass him the ball or, or they would defend him, double team him, things like that, just to kind of prove a point. That's a little bit of speculation, too. We don't really know if that happened. But uh, MJ comes in wearing the gold chain, pretty flashy, you know, kind of the the first guy to kind of come out and do that in in the sports world and yeah i think to your point i think nike was pretty smart if they said hey screw it just wear it you know what are they going to do they're not going to kick you out of the all-star game you're in the dunk contest and you're the most exciting thing that the nba seen in the last you know how long so yeah pretty interesting to think that they might have just said roll with it mj rolls with it and i think he caught the attention and probably caught quite a bit of respect from those veterans that froze him out and and, you know, the rest is history. I think we, we then saw a lot of those players dream of being Jordan over the years, I'm sure. You know, I was trying to look for it, but I don't know if you have the date. Do we do we know what the first Air Jordan was that Michael wore on court, whether it was the black toe or if it was just the regular red, white and black and what the date is? Do we have any idea of that? I'm not sure what that what that would be. I, I would assume it's either a, a, a P.E. or a sample or something that was made just for him. Just looking back because they the original release of the Jordan one was April 1st, 1985. Right. So for him, he had to have been wearing it a couple months leading up to that, I'm assuming. Um, but yeah, again, I would be super curious. I don't know for sure what one he first wore on the court. I would be curious if Nike would ever remember anybody there would remember what that timeline was, what they, because they were essentially giving him samples to wear until the other stuff was ready until the production sample was ready. Yeah, Cause we've seen the one with the dunk sole. We've seen the 1.5 or whatever they call that one now. Yeah. I mean, we saw it, we've seen, again, we've seen so many different iterations of it, uh, until you sent me that, uh, Chicago Tribune article today. And I looked and, and there was a Nike rep that had even kind of confirmed that April 1st of 1985 was the actual release date. But it wasn't a national release date. I believe that was July. So mm-hmm. April 1st was Chicago and a total of six cities. So I would assume New York and L.A. and all the big cities that that would maybe see that. Uh, and they had projected a pretty small uh, number of pairs. They said they projected selling 100,000 pairs in the first year. And at that point in 1985, just that was May of 85 was that article. They had said that the new projected range was to sell three to four million pairs in the first year. So I had heard back in the past, too, again, a lot of those numbers are blurry. There's a few different sources, but I had heard at one point that they had projected three million dollars in sales for the Air Jordan in the first year, and it sold over a hundred million. So uh, they obviously got their money's worth, and Jordan picked up some pretty crazy royalties. They probably even had to rework that deal just because they sold so many more than they had thought. So, um, but yeah, as far as looking back on what the first one he wore on court was, um, it was again, probably a sample. It wasn't the release version. You know, again, I talked about that guy, Chris, that we ran into has a, an old pair from ProServe that was a sample. Um, and it's a black toe sample. You can see that on the internet. It's pretty crazy. If you search Air Jordan one black toe sample, I'm sure it'll pop up and the leather is buttery. It's nice. It's got a thin toe and, and, uh, it is quite a bit different than the actual version that released, but knowing how rare the black toe Jordan one is, I would think that the Chicago one was the one that released. I think that then the black red, um, the black toe is pretty rare. I remember in my searches on eBay, finding an original pair of black toes was almost impossible. And when you did, they were like 1500 bucks. Yeah. I remember I bought a beat pair in like Oh three for like, I think like 400 bucks and they were just beat to hell. So, 
Um, and still to this day, I, I don't see many of those pop up. I actually have bought, as you know, I've hoarded a bunch of OG ones. At one point I had almost 50 pairs of OG ones. I think I have now about 30 pair uh, from 85. And I think I have two black toes, but they're just almost impossible. And those were from years and years ago. I mean, since you brought it up, I'll ask about it now. I was going to ask about it later. Which ones do you have in your hands and which ones are you missing and which ones are you still looking for, if any? So I'm actually not hunting actively for like a, a full checklist, so to speak. I have a lot of the black red. I have a lot of the black white red, the Chicago. Uh, I have a couple pairs of the black royal. Um, at one point I had the black white, ended up getting rid of those. The, the best thing for me has been I've connected with a lot of Jordan 1 collectors and people that are diehards. And when I find a guy who's got a passion like me for a certain colorway or a certain you know piece he needs for his collection, I'll let it go in a heartbeat, um, unless it's a sentimental pair. I, I think I've told you before, I'm hunting down autographed sneakers by some of my favorite athletes. So I have the 11s uh, signed by Tinker and MJ. That's a piece I'll just never let go. Uh, if I had a pair of ones signed by MJ, I'd never let them go. But as far as my OG collection, OG ones, I've let go of a bunch because I find somebody who either wants them or needs them more and is just gung-ho and they can't find them so the black white the original black white i've had um again i think i have two black toes right now uh, i've had the white gray got rid of those so part of it i actually paid for my two years of college by buying and selling vintage jordans that's uh my parents can attest to all the stinky ass beat jordans that were cl you know cluttering up my room um but for the most part that's how i pay for college so i had a lot of og carmine sixes and and you know grape fives and stuff and and i found the og1 niche and i started buying and selling those so again at one point i had 50 i ended up getting down to 10 and since i moved to new york i'm back up to 30 some and those are one of the only retros that won't completely deteriorate into dust also yeah so that that first shoe is still wearable uh if you look at of course you look at original jordan two three four five six nine those all crumble those all just crumble if you got an og pair of those i would not recommend wearing them the one is made with such great rubber and there's no none of that foam that midsole's not foam uh the upper gets a little bit crusty because that's but you can't see that and it's just there um and it, it won't deteriorate a whole lot and so you can actually wear them i actually wear og ones uh once in a while um but yeah so back to the colorways though i've i've i have a white blue metallic pair i've had white red white um purple I got rid of those. I mean, those were going for, I think I sold one pair at one point for like $1,600. Those just go for back in the day before they retroed them and did some of this other tumbled leather stuff they did a few years ago. Uh, I've never had white green. I've never had white black. Uh, there's some talk about this white maroon. There's a white, wet, white red. There's a white red and a white maroon, apparently two different ones. Um, there's, again, there's some pretty, pretty crazy dudes on Instagram that can attest this. There's one really young dude. Uh, who can attest to this? I'm sure he'll he'll catch catch wind of this and and uh, talk about his stuff. I have a pair of white Carolina. Uh, I've had the black, white. Like I said, I've had the royal white. That was one of the more rare ones that I thought was was pretty incredible. And I met a guy who ended up paying like six or seven hundred bucks for those. He wanted those pretty bad. Um, but yeah, the low metallics were really hard to get. So you had the the lows. You had the white gray, the white metallic navy, and the white metallic red. Uh, I never had any of those. Those were literally two grand back in the day. And it was just, I just didn't get it. Like it was cool, but I just, you know, beat pairs were going for a grand and I was like, no way. So, um, but you had a lot of guys, there was a couple guys back in the day that were all over that and they were buying and selling that. And, um, you know, a good guy for this would actually be Alex Wang, retro kid. He loves a lot of OG stuff and he could probably talk to a lot of original ones and, uh, he was big on the four, but he could probably speak to a lot of this stuff. And, and then, of course, uh, Dependable Jay has some pretty awesome stuff. Shout out to Jay. He's 
he's got some great stuff. He's got uh, OG Black Toes I've seen, and and I mean that dude's probably got some crazy stuff. Samples, I think they have a lot of samples. So I by no means am like the greatest Jordan One collector. I just uh, what the shoe's done for the industry and. It's why we have jobs and sneakers. It's why people care about sneakers is I think that really started a lot of stuff. But um, I'm not actively on the hunt for any specific colorways. When I see something pop up for a few hundred bucks or, or the right price, I just grab it and probably grab it too much, you know, probably grab too many pairs. Um, but there's something about that shoe. It will never, to your point, it won't deteriorate. It won't break. So just to have it, to get it, uh, there's a lot of people for me, it's, it's an artifact. It's something that will, it's timeless. It's a shoe that when people see... You know, I've sold them to friends and, and people that are just like, dude, I just need a pair of my collection. And, and it's something they'll cherish for a long time. It's just a shoe that, that kind of stands the test of time. So we were just talking about how Nike exceeded the sales of the Jordan in the first year. And then you just also mentioned how, you know, it changed the sneaker industry forever. Let's talk about a little bit what, you know, what, what was it? About the about the Air Jordan One, about the marketing, or about Jordan's play that really you know turned this shoe into a pop culture phenomenon back then, and and how it remains one now. I think it was just a perfect storm. I think anybody that understands marketing and sneakers and sales and sports and the business of sports is everybody tried to capture that after MJ. You know, I think I think Nike got that a little bit with Penny Hardaway. They're now they obviously got that now with LeBron, but LeBron's deal was what initially 7 million bucks a year. So, I think looking back at, at and all these athletes now, they wanted the Mike deal. They wanted the Jordan deal. You know, that was something that set the tone for the industry. They had an athlete that they decided for some reason to put all their eggs in that basket, you know, and and the perfect storm. If Jordan goes to Adidas, I don't think Air Jordan is what it is. It's just it just went to have the hype. It went to have the buzz. It, it went. To, it had the right. Uh, it was a perfect storm to have. All, again, all those players um, that I talked about before. Converse had Dr. J. Okay, they had a nice little campaign with him. Kareem he had his own shoe. It was cool and and it was great at the time. Then you had Magic and Bird, but they didn't even have their names on their shoes. Well, and and they had like PEs, right? They had really great Lakers PEs and and Celtics PEs, and those teams won, right? So I think what what had happened was the perfect storm with Jordan was a great player at the right time, got in a really good market, right? Chicago is a great market. It's one of the biggest markets in all the NBA at the time. They sucked, but he brought you know a new energy to the team attendance doubled or whatever happened but to give nike and the designer peter for some reason peter moore just threw different colors on it and they had a shoe i mean the jordan one is pretty much at the time kind of like an air force one but slapped on with a bunch of color they tweaked it and kind of a dunk and an air force one and everything wrapped into one um and then he just caught fire. I mean, the the it getting banned and it being a, one of the most expensive shoes, sixty five bucks. At yeah, the it time. was it was the most expensive basketball shoe at the time. Yeah, and and then you know then it couples with at sixty five dollars. Crazy to think now, right? <laughs> what is it? What is the the one that dropped over the weekend is one sixty. So it's like a, almost a hundred bucks after tax, a hundred bucks more uh, back than what it originally retailed for. So I think part of the other the other thing to look at with this is when you have. Uh, all those things lining up for you and then performance on the court. I think we would all agree. And I think any marketing exec would say that once the player performs at a high level, the team is winning, the team's winning championships. That's when it really explodes. So the energy with Chicago, they went from a terrible season to more wins and then more wins, more wins, more wins uh, from there to then being the, the greatest of all time that we're saying. But you know, it was crazy, actually. Jordan broke his foot three games into the 85 season and missed, 
I guess when did he, he was back by the playoffs. So I don't know exactly when he came back, but you know, it's crazy to think that, you know, the shoe came out in, in April 85 by October, November 85, he was injured up until the spring of the next year. And the shoe was still going strong. I mean, there are some reports that it was on sale racks at some point, And that's how a lot of these skaters ended up getting the shoes. Um, but yeah, I mean, for that shoe, I mean, he, 84, 85, yeah, I mean, two seasons in, in that shoe. Yeah, I mean, you got you to gotta think, too, that when he was in the dunk contest in February of 85, he was on a national level, right? So if you watched the game of basketball at all, or you were even somewhat of a casual fan, you maybe caught the all-star game or the dunk contest. It's not as popular as it, it has been the last few years, but uh, people were paying attention. And so when they saw this flashy guy, this young guy, he had just won player of the year, too. So if you are a basketball fan, you saw that. Uh, he had kind of arrived with the game when he shot as a freshman and then won player of the year. So it wasn't like he was a chump and Nike got lucky. They, they grabbed the player of the year and then he ended up, you know, doing all that great stuff. So while he was hurt, he actually, he went back and got his degree at North Carolina when he was hurt. But while he was hurt, maybe the, the momentum he had from the first year that people weren't seeing him on the court. So they were seeing all these great moments. They were playing, Oh, can't wait to get him back. And Chicago was anticipating him to get back. They were wondering initially when he broke his foot, they said he'd be out six weeks and holding him out for months because they wanted to make sure he'd come back healthy. He was their franchise guy. So when he comes back though, he drops, they, they got swept by the Celtics or whatever. They, they couldn't even get a game because bird and Mikhail, those guys were studs and, and ended up, you know, having that dynasty. But MJ breaks his foot, comes back, drops 63. And you see the highlights now. He's crossing Bird. He's hitting these jumpers. Larry Bird then, who the, is the three-time MVP at the time, comes back and says, that was God disguised as Michael Jordan. So that quote plays too. When Larry Bird speaks highly of you, and even though you lost, you dropped 63 on Larry Legend at that point, uh, the NBA takes notice. So as the NBA takes notice, they start maybe putting him on TV more. They start showing him more. And I think from there, with that Air Jordan deal, I would almost guarantee that Falcon Dell went to other brands and said, listen, if Nike paid him a half a million bucks, hey, Gatorade, you should pay him. Hey, Chevy, you should pay him. Uh, and then the momentum from there just grew. And he became almost, I almost think that Nike manufactured a superstar to the point where MJ said, well, if I'm going to be on TV and I'm going to be in commercials and I'm going to be in front of all these people, I better be pretty good. So I actually think that helped him helped motivate him and helped make him work even harder knowing that he was going to be in that spotlight. I would also argue that that Celtics playoff game um, was what probably really propelled Air Jordan in the so-called urban markets too. Because I mean, even for me, I in 86, I was a young Knicks fan in New Jersey, but I've hated the Celtics. And, and even for me, a white guy, I always thought that team was too white and there was something about him that I just couldn't stand. So then to have this young Michael Jordan come in and drop 63 on that, on that bunch of honkies in Boston Garden, I mean, that's kind of like a triumphant moment for any Celtic hater or Michael Jordan lover or anyone who just loves basketball. Well, yeah, and to your point, if anybody loves basketball, as you're watching the playoffs, you say, okay, the Celtics advanced. Okay, you know, I hate the Celtics, but they advanced. But what the hell just happened in that playoff game? What the hell was that? Who was that guy? You know, it starts making people say, pay attention and say, who the hell was that guy? Like 63 points. This isn't like, you know, Bird will go off for 30 or 40 and that's cool. Or this guy dropped 63, which I think is still a playoff record. So, you know, at the time, people, although the Celtics were advancing, were looking back going, I kind of want to see what this dude's going to do next year. Like, who is this guy? So from there, I think then more people were paying attention. Of course, then back then the media starts flocking and saying, okay, now this guy who dropped 63 is in town to play the Knicks. This guy who dropped 63 is in town to play whoever. And they just started marketing him, you know, on his own. And, 
And uh, I mean, how now in this day and age, he would get bombarded. But back then, I bet every city he went to, he said, talk about dropping 63 on Larry Bird. It got so sickening that he said, you know what, screw it, I'll just buy into it. Yeah, it was great. I was the man, you know, and and then that confidence started growing. And I think you see back from when MJ announces he's going pro and there's a great like grainy video press conference to where he was later in the like early 90s. He was just became more well-spoken, more confident in himself. To now he's one of the best, most well-spoken athletes of all time, just as well, far as what he has to say. everything about him change. His whole, his, the way his, like he wasn't even done with puberty when he got into the league. You saw his face change and his whole demeanor is really crazy. There was actually, I remember on Twitter like a year or two ago, um, it was actually Chuck D was talking about it and he was talking about how the Detroit Pistons were so instrumental in Jordan's progression too, because, you know, he went against them, I guess maybe it was 87 or, or 88 or 89. And anyway, they were just beating the shit out of him. So, you know, that, you know, and it was Chuck D who was talking about it, which, I, which was funny that, you know, the Pistons made Jordan go into the gym and get more muscle and get tougher and come back, you know, mentally and physically stronger, you know, to finally get past those guys. Yeah. And he was he's gone on the record and said thank you to the Pistons because at the time he was getting the shit beat out of them and he hated it and he was frustrated and he was getting pissed off like any of us would be. But the Pistons knew what they were doing and, and they leveraged the rules of the game to be able to beat the piss out of a guy and, and get away with it or just send him to the line. But he frustrated him. He got to him mentally. I think that made Jordan quite a bit better mentally and physically. Again, I was pretty young at this time, but from what I've researched and seen, MJ says, yeah, give all the credit to the Pistons because I, I did get in and put in the work and knew that that was the hump that he had to get over. And I think once he started winning, a, you know, he won a playoff series with the game winner in 89, the shot over Elo, of course. And then from there, that was a good confidence booster. So you see these, ironically, all these defining moments in Jordan's career. I think looking back with the one, it was getting the big deal and then, you know, the 63-point game and then the game winner over Elo and and then eventually eventually getting over the hump with the um, with the Pistons and then eventually winning a championship, you know. And, and I think... Um, from there, he was just like almost untouchable. You know, he, he was pretty much like LeBron is now in Cleveland. He was the GM. He was telling guy who to bring in and how to do it. And I bet he was coaching almost more than Phil because Phil was just chilling like the Zen master. And, and Jordan was like telling these guys how to be better and get better. And I would bet everybody that ever played with MJ would say, you know what? He was a pain in the ass and he was a, a, a prick. But he was the greatest thing that ever happened in my career because it made me perform better. It, just like that spotlight did for MJ, MJ did for those players. Well, nobody has ever questioned MJ's mental toughness. You know what I mean? That's the one knock on LeBron now. You know, it's, oh, you know, you know, all the comparisons to Jordan. But, you know, there was never there was never any question of that guy's mental toughness ever. Well, and LeBron just came out and said he's chasing the ghost of Jordan. I actually think uh, this championship helped him not do that as much. Maybe he got that off his chest. I think he's going to go in confident. The Warriors are obviously going to be nasty. There's a couple other teams that are going to be good, but. Uh, just looking at that, like I think there's been a lot of moments like that in LeBron's career as well. So I think as we look at the shoe as a whole, though, it's interesting to note that although the shoe was caught fire and had $100 million in sales, the two did pretty well also. Then the three was pretty great with, with Tinker coming in. But something that a lot of people don't know is that when those first Air Jordan 1 retros came out, they sat on shelves. They were discounted at TJ Maxx from what it sounds like. And, and we're talking about 94, right? When he retired and Nike, for those who don't know, when, when Nike started retroing, they got to the first three Air Jordans and then he came back and they stopped retroing. Yeah. And so they, and it sounds like they sampled the five. I saw a sample of the Jordan five. They ended up not putting out in 94. They might've said, well, this isn't selling, so we won't continue it. But uh, at that point, you know, the Jordan 9 came out and Jordan wasn't wearing it on court and the Jordan 10, he wasn't wearing it on court. And so they just started bringing back shoes. So those actually didn't sell well. And then 01 came. Those, 
I remember buying a pair of black Royal Jordan ones for I think 80 bucks and, and they were just sitting there and I just grabbed them on Nike.com at the time or Nikeytown.com at the time. And the, I got the silver ones as well. Mm-hmm. And those were all, I think, numbered I, to 50,000. Yeah, I got all those on sale. I got all of those, all of those 2001s for, I think, about 60 or 65 bucks a piece up on uh, Fordham Road. Yeah, and, and Jordan retros weren't huge. I remember a lot of these guys were grabbing uh, pairs of Jordan 11s just sitting on shelves, you know, and, and a lot of the, the retro craze wasn't that crazy. I think it was 05 that it really took back off. And then, I mean, now we've seen every year Jordan 1 retro under the sun. And, and you know, we talk about this because we're just looking over the weekend, the Jordan one just released again, you know, and, and this is, you know, been quite a few releases. We take a look at the original 85 release and then they retroed at 94. The 01 was actually a mid. We're talking just black red was a mid. Then they did the DMP, the 60 plus pack where they honored that Celtics game in 2009. It was, uh, I think it was the, the black red one with the Celtics colored one as well. And then 2011 was the band, which, you know, with the X on the back and then they did 2013, uh, and then now this 2016 version. So they've retroed it quite a bit. If you even want to count that 1.5, if you want to count the AJKO, they've put out quite a few black red uh, Jordans as a whole. But the one, you know, this is uh, quite a few times now, but people still love it. And, and you know, there's that resale market as well. Those are probably going for four or 500 bucks. And I, they've produced quite a few pairs this time around. So we'll see, see how it does. But uh, interesting to see the one back this weekend uh or the past weekend and then also the jordan 31 which we would definitely should talk about and how that original uh how that initial colorway was inspired by the band and uh just try to get your take what's your take on the 31 i mean it's an all right shoe but i mean i think we talked about the 30 already it almost seems when i first saw that shoe it was strange to me that they were going back and referencing the one on the 31 to me it almost felt like they thought they had missed an opportunity on the 30 and they were trying to make up for it a little bit as far as just the evolution or the history of the air jordan line like to me why why for num- why number 31 to the go back to number one it just seems like it was a little strange to me so it sounds like they may have ran out of time a little bit on the 30 um you know knowing that I think as historians, we say, oh, they should do something special for the 30. And we were hoping for some big epic, you know, launch and all these crazy colorways and, and you know, some kind of tie to do something for the 30th anniversary, just knowing that, you know, 85 to, to 2015 um, might have been a little bit of a miss. But at the same time, it's a basketball shoe like that's her focus. Now, it's not this collectible shoe. It's really just to put out something people can play in. Now you have Russell Westbrook and all these Jordan guys, Kawhi Leonard and some of these guys kind of carrying on the legacy, specifically Westbrook. But I think it sounds like the the concept they're going with is taking the 31 and kind of saying, now, will the 32 be inspired by the two? Potentially, we don't really know. Um, of course, the 31 has the swoosh on it. I actually like the 31. I just love the game of basketball. So I think I'd it's a nice to, looking shoe. To, but you're right. You made a good point just now. It's like I think people look at these Jordans as something that's still supposed to be a fashion item. You know, when we were talking about the early ones, the first, I mean, I guess the first, I don't know, the first 11 or first 14 air jordans you know they happen to be the most you know the best performance technical shoes and the most fashionable at the same time you know now we're at a point where the shoes are really for performance i mean you have like you said you have a million retros to choose from that we don't really necessarily need the fashion from the newest basketball shoe i mean it's a basketball shoe i think you know again as someone who loves the air jordan line we we talk a lot about and analyze you know what it should have been or could have been and it's easy from the outside looking in, you know, looking at it to say, oh, they should have done this. They could have done that. I think the guys are doing a great job. You, you obviously have Tinker. You have Tate Kiribus now on, on did the 31. I think it's a great basketball shoe. Um, I look at it as 
you know, to take that fly weave and to take that, that really rich leather that they have and kind of blend those together with that stitch jump man on the back heel. I think it's a gorgeous looking shoe. Um, we have to remember it's a basketball shoe, you know, they're, they're rooted in performance. Uh, you know, they created kind of fashionable basketball shoes back in the day and people took them and made them these fashion statements versus, you know, of course they're sold. So they're meant to do that, but uh, they're really rooted in performance now. And I think that's where we got to be like, we're not going to get another Jordan one. The 31 will never be a one. You know, the 32 will never be a two. Like one through 14, to your point, are these shoes that Jordan wore on the court. So it just makes sense that we love those because we had these different moments. Now, not many people are like, oh, when Russell dropped 60, he was wearing the 31. So in 10 years, that's going to be a great shoe. There's going to be the Jordan 40 in in that amount of time where people will be like, oh, this is the new thing. So it's always interesting to me to talk to like people that are diehard sneaker people that just want like another timeless shoe. It's if you don't like the game of basketball, you may not love the Air Jordan line. And I think Jordan Brand's okay with that. You know, Tinker's been on the record many times saying either you love it or you hate it. And we're okay with that. We don't really give a shit what you think for the most part. Somebody's going to like it. Somebody's going to buy it. Um, and then, of course, you have a lot of times we've talked uh, with a lot of my friends that are into sneakers about how stuff's really grown on you over the years. You're like, ah, didn't really like that shoe. But now, five years later, it's actually pretty nice. And, and you go to hunt for it on eBay and it's double. And you're like, oh, shit, you know, maybe that is pretty sweet. Well, I'm like that for some reason with the nines. The, the black and olive nines. And I remember when they retro those, like whenever it was, 15 years ago, uh, there's a store Transit on Broadway, an active warehouse, and they were literally dyeing or coloring the olive to make them black on black. You know, but for some reason, it was a shoe that I had no interest in at the time because I was strictly just about the ones he wore on court, you know, the colorways and the actual shoes he wore on court. But now I'm looking at those shoes. I'm like, shit, I wish I had a pair of those. And it's something weird back. You look at all these colorways. I mean, I look at Jordan 1 colorways. Who decided to do this metallic series? Like, how amazing no, yeah, is that? That's so cool. Yeah. yeah, that's something we should, we need to dive into. Yeah, because it's true, because they're out of nowhere, right? You're getting the colors he wore on court. They're, you know, that simple. Then the Carolina blue, fine. But then, yeah, we got the Georgetown color, the white and blue, the white and blue, the white and navy. And then, yeah, the metallics. I mean, where did those come from? Because I don't even think there's anything at that time. You know, it's not like, you know, in 1990, everything was neon. So we know that's like a trend. Those metallics are kind of on their own. You yeah, know? It's, a, it's a standalone shoe that to this day, I, like I said, I'm always curious, you know, who has the story behind those? You know, who who did it? Was a team dealer? Because some of those didn't even release. You know, a lot of them didn't release. I think it was just the white metallic that maybe even released. Uh, some of them may have released over the years, but they're, it's still like not totally defined as far as what that looked like. But I look at a lot of that, how these colorways come about. You know, the olive, you had the grape fives. Of course, the hornets were popular back then, but, but you had the grape five. You had... Uh, the Bordeaux seven, like some of these are really incredible how they had these colorways, uh, you know, way ahead of their time. So, uh, of course, Tinker designed a lot of those OG, you know, Jordans back in the day, but I'd be curious, did he also color them up or did they have, now there's a colorist and all these other, you know, ins and outs of, of how things get done, but who colored those up? You know, that's a, to me, pretty curious. So, you know, looking back, since this is, we're talking about the one, those metallics, I think even the AJKO, how that came about would be interesting to learn about. And, uh, just kind of taking a, a step back, of course, you had the Carolina, the black, white, those are pretty standard colorways. There's a, uh, that Laker sample of the Jordan one, which is pretty interesting. The black gold one, mm -hmm. uh, the patent leather apparently. And, and then you also have a couple other samples that were white, blue, uh, white and blue, white, blue, black. Um, if any of you OG guys have, have ideas on where that stuff came from, or anybody at Nike is like sitting around 30 years later, just like 
dying to tell their story. Finally, you know, Sonny, Sonny finally got to tell his story on Soul Man. And he's been, he's, they said, hey, you're ready to tell your story. He said, I've been waiting my whole life. So if there's anybody like that, I know Peter Moore, you know, eventually he went to Adidas. So did Rob Strasser. But I'd love to connect with him. If he has any info, I'd love to connect with some of these other guys that if they have any info on that. I mean, we've seen a lot of the photos. I, I don't know if we'll unearth a whole lot more. Um, but it's really the information, the release dates, the knowledge, who colored up the metallics, who colored up some of this other stuff I'd be super curious about. All right. Well, Jordan, we covered a lot today. Thank you for joining me on the Classic Kicks podcast. Thanks for sharing your knowledge on the Jordan 1 and going through uh, memory lane a little bit and trying to unearth some of the history of this iconic shoe. Um, thank you for listening. And I will be posting a companion on ClassicKicks.com with images of a lot of the stuff that we were talking about here. So be sure to check that out too.